Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of Radio 815. I am Matt Crandall, here as always with my co-host Marcelo Inestroza, as we take a deep dive into the works of J.J. Abrams and the extended Bad Robot universe. Our journey today has brought us to the final two episodes of Alias, the season five finale, which aired as a two-hour block in May of 2006, the episodes Reprisal and All the Time in the World, or as I like to call them because of all the stuff that goes down, Sydney Bristow and The Last Crusade, <laughs> because there is a lot of Indiana Jones-esque stuff that goes down in these final two episodes that put a nice bow on the series and wrap up a lot of threads. Some of the threads are left dangling. Marcelo, what did you think of the final episodes of Alias. I really, really enjoyed uh, the final two episodes of Alias. One thing in particular that I enjoyed uh, from episode 16 is that at the beginning of episode 16, you see the team in different parts of the world actually hunting down and identifying the members of Prophet 5. So I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I didn't like with that is that... All season long, granted, they didn't know that this was the final season, but all season long, Prophet 5 was being built up as this ominous, evil corporation that was just going to cause all sorts of havoc. But in the end, Prophet 5 ended up being gunned down by uh, Fred in a room with a bunch of machine guns. Right. So I thought that was pretty anticlimactic, but it's a good point that you mentioned in the open that um, these, uh, specifically this two-part finale, had a lot of Indiana Jones vibes to it because in episode 16, in that whole scene with Sydney and Sloan in that Arctic cave, for example, mm -hmm. when Sloan is holding up that the, the, the amulet, you know, he says to Sydney, you can't see this part, and then he shoots Sydney's feet, and then Sydney falls through the ice. That whole scene to me just screamed Indiana Jones in the Wall of the Souls. I was like, they ripped this off. There's a couple of things in these episodes that like are directly lifted from Indiana Jones in a loving way, but like scene for scene, almost the same. You know, when I say they ripped it off, I, I, I didn't mean that in any negative connotation. I thought mm -hmm. that, that it was yeah. just very cool for them to do that. Um, the other thing that this two-parter gave me is it gave me the one thing I've wanted for five goddamn years. And basically, they killed Sloane. But, you know, a couple scenes after that, he came back to life. And I was like, what? No. This guy needs to die. Why isn't he dead? When we do find out how Sloane was able to finally knock off Prophet 5. And we do find out that his secret benefactor is, oh God, Arena Directco. I was like, really? At that point, I was just saying, this is such, this is such bullshit. I was so upset when his secret benefactor was revealed. And it really was an emotional scene when after the fight between Arena and Sydney on the roof, and to see Arena go after that ball artifact, uh, rather than getting off of the uh, the skylight that she was about to fall through, 
I was like, dude, so you care more about Rambaldi's secret than you do your daughter? I was like, that's just not right. That's that's really effed up. And that's the scene specifically that is beat for beat Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, where Indy is like, Elsa, let it go. And she's like, I can reach the cup. I can reach it. And he's like, let it go. Like, you are going to die if you don't. And she's like, the grail is within reach. And then, you know, she doesn't make it out. Because she won't stop going after the artifact, even when it's like, it's a lost cause. Like, your life is more important. Other things are more important than this artifact. And Irina can't see through that. But partly, that's one of the part of the finales that really irks me, is that Irina is so shoehorned in there at the last minute. Where, like, they're like, oh, Arena was helping Sloan the whole time, and now Sydney is already on her way to confront her, and they have their quick confrontation, and oh, Arena is now dead. And it's like, if I had known during season two that that was how this whole Sydney's mum arc was going to pay off, you would be, like, investing a lot less into it. Because it doesn't pay off in any sort of grand way. And even it would have been better if Irina found herself in a position like that and decides not to choose the artifact, but still dies in the process and makes some sort of, you know, grand sacrifice, um, something so that there would just be a little bit more to go on to make that whole, her introduction into the series at all feel worth it. Other than the fact that, you know, there was some nice mirroring between, Sydney having her own kid and having to choose and saying, like, I would never choose to be a spy. I would always choose to be a mom. The other thing that they fumbled, I thought, was a relationship between Arena and Nadia. Mm-hmm. Like, they, introdu- they, they introduced Nadia as this sort of bastard child that, that quote-unquote, Arena never knew about, right? Mm-hmm. And I felt that um, Nadia and Arena never had the the type of relationship that uh, Sydney and Arena had. Did you feel that at all? Did you feel that she was a sort of a gypped character? Well, they definitely didn't have a good relationship at all, and especially the fact that Nadia got killed three episodes ago. Like they never they never were going to. So even Nadia in general is a character who they could have done so much more with. And then because of the circumstances of the show ending, their hand was kind of forced that there were so many avenues they could have gone that they just didn't get time. And they they rushed through it. And they decided, okay, Nadia is just now a device for Sloane's conscience. And when Sloane doesn't have a conscience anymore, then Nadia like disappears and doesn't give him any comfort. Um, so yeah, that was one of the frustrating things. And not that I want to, you know... Well, I'll go into my negatives, my heavy negatives off the top. So we'll get all the negativity out of the way. The other thing I think they really fumbled was in episode 16, Tom sacrifices himself to save everyone, which was nice and actually like endearing to Tom. But for 90% of the episodes that Tom was in, we're told like he's brooding and he's still getting over the death of his wife and all this stuff. And as he's on the precipice of death, he doesn't think about his wife. He asks Rachel on a date and like, I get that they wanted to show like he had moved beyond it, 
But with him knowing that he was about to die, I thought it would have been nicer if it was almost like he was at peace with it because he'd be rejoining his wife or for him to pull out a photo from his wallet of him and his wife having a good time, like something other than like, oh, I wish I had gone on a date with this new woman that I only just met four weeks ago. So like, it was like, yeah, it was a nice send off for that character that I didn't like that much. But I also thought with what we knew about him, it was just so weird that they were like, he's moved on. He's ready to to get on with his life at the exact 30 seconds before his life was over. That was one of those things that like kind of irked me. Like it boosted up the likability factor of Tom and made it seem like him and Rachel had a really nice connection. But when he spent 12 out of 16 episodes moping about his dead wife... Like, that was the moment that he should have been reflecting on her and sort of been at peace that he was joining her. And I was really surprised they went the complete other way with it. Um, and then, obviously, Nadia Ghost still appears. And when she still appears, there's that weird wind wind noise. And I, I didn't love that. But I do love when she abandons Sloan. Um, and now I'll get into, like, the good stuff. That... Like you said, when they were tracking down all of Prophet 5, um, that whole sequence where Sydney's taking pictures and they're like doing all the spy work was awesome. And it was like, yeah, this is like a Mission Impossible. We're getting the bad guys. But the fact that they all got taken out <laughs> by, by Peyton, who like they never have met in one place before ever, but Sloan calls a meeting and Peyton comes and just guns them all down. It was like, really? There was no fail safes? in place so that they wouldn't all gather in one place or, you know, a better security check. I thought, and you know, Peyton still had more to do in the finale, but I thought it would have been a great Sloan moment if he had sent her to that meeting, not knowing that she was actually carrying a bomb that was going to kill all of profit five and her suicide bomber style, but she wouldn't have known. And I thought that would have been, a little bit more believable in like all of the Machiavelli stuff that Sloan has done. If she goes and if we had a notion that she thought she was just going for this meeting and, you know, Sloan were to tell Sydney in that cavern, like it's too late. Prophet five is gone. And so is Peyton. And, you know, the joke is on all of them. I thought that would have been like a better way to take it and a little bit more powerful. Um, but the really nice moments in the actual last hour, all the time in the world, written by Drew Goddard and Jeff Pinkner, are they do sprinkle, and it's like a trope that, like at first I was starting to roll my eyes, but then I liked how they used it, where we flashed back to different moments in Sid's life that we hadn't seen from her as a child through to being older. It gave us a reason to bring Francie back for a scene, which was nice because um, we haven't seen her in a while. And the way that they juxtaposed the young Sydney and Jack scenes with the current Sydney and Jack scenes actually added a lot of emotional weight to the finale and especially to Jack's death, which in the moment I was like, oh, is this is this like real? Is he really going to die? But I liked that seeing him when he finds out that Sydney works for Credit Dauphine. For the first time, he didn't know that she had been recruited. He didn't know any of this. And she tells him and she doesn't know that he knows because she's not aware that he's a spy at this point. But the look on Garber's face 
was so awesome and added so much. And like, for me, the MVP of this finale was Victor Garber. Like the guy was incredible. And the amount of work that Jack does in that flashback. And then as he is dying and says like, Sydney, you know, they have their touching moment and he's like, you have to go, like you have to go and stop all of this stuff. You have to get it done. I've lived the way I've lived and I'm at peace with it. And you go, there are more important things than staying here as I die for the next half hour, which was like such a badass Jack thing to do. And then when that dovetails into Sloan coming back, coming back to life after we get that satisfying moment of Sloan getting shot in the head where everybody cheers <laughs> and then Sloan comes back and you know, when Jack's like, you're not getting away with this, you son of a bitch. I'm not going to allow it. And you might live forever, but you're going to be trapped in a cave by yourself for eternity was such a badass moment. And, you know, Jack was already dead, but that explosion and sacrifice to give Sloan the comeuppance that he has deserved forever was like the most satisfying part of this finale for me by far. I would definitely agree with you. The most satisfying part of this finale for me was seeing Jack basically suicide bomb himself when he was already dead and bury Sloan by himself in that cave forever and ever. Amen. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to agree with you that the most, the, the one of the most satisfying parts of um, We Have All the Time in the World for me is that they interspliced uh, various scenes from Sydney's life, like you said. Like we got to see when she first got recruited. We got to see Francie again, which I thought was really nice. Mm-hmm. And we got to see um, uh, just a really quick little scene between Sloane and Sydney when Sloane said to Sydney, I'm thinking about putting you in the field, but I need to warn you that if 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 you decide to go into the field, your life is going to be awful, mm-hmm. you know? You're 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 gonna do shit that you're never gonna be able to forgive yourself for. And for a second, I was like, is he consciously at this very moment, is he consciously apologizing for what he's going to do, or is he just putting on a nice smiling face for all the for you know, you know, just for show? Mm. And for me, I I like to think that he was doing that, you know, sort of subconsciously, he was kind of warning her. My favorite scene from Victor Garver is is his actual, not his actual death scene, but his actual final conversation with Sydney mm-hmm. out there on the rocks. The only thing that really bothered me about that is that he got shot in the chest twice, right? And uh-huh. if you actually hear him, if you actually look at his face while he's talking, there's no blood coming out of his mouth. Right. And I was like, I'm, I, I understand that this is nitpicking and, and this is extremely, you know, you know, really nerdy fan. But I'm like, shouldn't he be bleeding from his mouth at this point? <laughs> and you know what? I think it's probably just uh, on the day Garber was killing it so bad. They were like, we don't want anything to distract or, you know, for the, the blood to leak back into his mouth and screw up the scene. Uh, a practical reason why they didn't do it. I love the 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 choice to actually show different scenes from Sydney's life. Like I've already mentioned, that was the thing 
from the series finale that really worked for me. I really enjoyed that immensely. As a matter of fact, the scene that I enjoyed the most of the flashback scenes that they insert in there was a flashback scene when Sydney, the the little blocks that sort of showed Jack that she had a higher... Basically, she has a certain set of skills. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was my favorite thing. But one part of the finale that I absolutely hated was the fact that after they captured Peyton, or Amy Acker, as I like to call it, because that's who she is, you you guys can hate me for all you want for not knowing name, but I'm sorry. Uh, once they captured Amy Acker, her weakness is snakes. I was Indiana like, Jones again. Really? Snakes? A woman that badass is afraid of snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> I'm telling you, it's everybody loves Indiana Jones, and they were just like, yeah, that works. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really... Um, I really wanted to see a little bit more resistance from her, but I do understand, you know, if you're deathly afraid of something and they put it in a room with you and you're tied up to a chair and, you know, and God knows where, you're going to eventually give it all up. I did like seeing Sark again. I thought I thought that was very cool. Mm-hmm. The one line that he said that I was very intrigued by, he said, listen, I'm a businessman. I don't want to cause world genocide i have no interest in doing that right it's not in his best interest either which yeah. was yeah he's like why would i want to do that when like it'll put me out of business i noticed something i i've noticed it before but i haven't really brought it up in the course of us talking about alias uh for for god knows how many episodes now mm-hmm. alias likes to torture people in chairs a lot yes do you notice that they like to yeah. torture people in chairs a lot <laughs> They they do. It is one of their go-to moves. And uh and my favorite torture scene happened in the in this uh finale. It was the, it was a Marshall torture scene. I loved what he said to Sloan. He said he basically said to Sloan, "Look, no matter what you do to me, I'm not gonna I am not gonna give it up." Mm-hmm. Right? I I'm not gonna give you what you want. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to chop my head off because I'm not gonna give it to you. During that scene, for some reason, the the speech that popped into my head, I don't know why this happened, but the speech that popped into my head was like, oh, all you have to do to make them talk is find something personally important to them and you squeeze. Right. I was like, he should have pulled a Kittredge move. That that thought sort of just randomly uh, went went into my head. But I really enjoyed... Um, these final two episodes, like I said, I did have some minor gripes here and there. I didn't like that uh, Sloane's benefactor was Arena. I didn't like her reasoning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't like her, the way that her storyline ended uh, wrapped up overall. Right. I thought it could have been handled better. Um, but I thought that Jeff Pickner and Drew Goddard did the best they could have done with with the with what they were given um i don't yeah, blame with them where they were and the amount of time they had left they did a decent enough job yeah yeah i you know i i seriously don't blame them and i have to i i, I have to apologize to them because i do feel that in the last episode 
we spoke about this we spoke about this privately off of the air but in the last episode i was really cruel to the writing staff <laughs> and uh if anybody who actually wrote on Illinois is actually listening to this right now i apologize you guys did the best you could with with what you had and okay. i'll just i'll just go back and mention uh i did love the marshall stuff in this two-hour block um because Marshall has been a fan favorite to put him in danger one last time and make it a bit more personal with us seeing him and Mitchell and then having Carrie, you know, worried as hell um, and getting her involved again was nice. The only thing I didn't like was that Carrie is like, why would anyone want to kidnap Marshall? He, he He's just working on video games or whatever. And it was like, oh my God, like she was already part of of the cia so the fact that she didn't realize that even though she thought marshall was kicked out of course he wasn't was one of those like for real did they forget that she was involved in all of this earlier why did we even have her questioning why marshall would be taken like of course the guy is you know even if he wasn't still spying we know that he has been a spy and she knows he has been a spy so like of course somebody would want to kidnap him because he's one of the best hackers in the world so that was the only thing that irked me. But I loved seeing Marshall get to stand up, um, be strong. And then the whole, you know, when Sloan goes back on his word and he's going to kill them anyway. And then Rachel gets a badass scene and then Sydney gets a badass rescue scene um, was awesome. I loved all that. And that scene that you talked about earlier with Sloan and Sydney in the flashbacks where he says, I will put you into the field. But if I do, just know that like all of this is going to get a lot worse. Are you okay with that? Because if you're not, I'm not going to do it. In that moment, it is a warning, letting her know. It is giving her the choice, but it's also Sloan trying to absolve himself of any future guilt or responsibility in whatever happens. It's kind of like if you ever say to a person like, can I be honest with you? But you got to promise you're not going to get mad. And then the person is like, well, well, what is it? And you're like, well, promise you're not going to get mad. And it's like, well, how can you promise that you're not going to get mad when you don't know what it is? But that person, if you do promise, then they're like, they think that they can just tell you anything and they're absolved of, even if the thing they're about to tell you is like the shittiest thing a person could say to another person, right? They think that that you know, cleans the slate for their conscience. And I feel like that's what Sloan was trying to do in those moments, as well as, you know, feeling out whether this life was really for her or not, because even when Sloan has become a bastard and he has turned on Sydney in this last arc for, for most of it, he did care about her like a daughter. Um, and it's only in these final episodes where like, you know, he's, he's remembering also like this used to happen and I warned her. So like everything that happens, she signed up for tough shit, which is such a dick thing, but also just adds another layer to his character that I did love that. Um, and then when we finally close out and fade out on the show, we have that flash forward, Sid and Vaughn are living happily on a beach with Isabel and their new son, Jack named after good old, good old pops. And, uh, Dixon comes for a visit, which is nice. And he wants their help. And we find out that they have done some missions in between, you know, the, the time jump and now, 
And this particular mission that he's trying to feel out if Sid is going to come back for a little bit involves Sark, who is still up to his no good mercenary shenanigans, which is awesome. And Isabel puts together that impossible puzzle that shows that she is cut out for being an agent as well. And we don't know that's all sort of left up in the air. And we don't know if Sydney's going to agree to go on this mission or not, but it's nice to see that after all of the stuff they have been through, you know, basically they do have a happy life. And if they never did anything again and we ended it there, then that's, that's kind of a nice ending. Like Sydney got her family, her and Vaughn are together and they live in a beautiful tropical paradise. So that's kind of nice. And of course it does leave the door open that if anything were to come up and they wanted to do a revival, they could. And even because Jennifer Garner just had this movie come out on Netflix yesterday, um, which I don't recommend, <laughs> by the way, uh, she was in the press and somebody said, Hey, what, what are the possibilities of an alias revival slash reboot? And just last week, Jennifer Garner said she would love to do it. She'd totally be up for it. But with the caveat that Bradley Cooper would have to be involved and Will Tippin would have to come back somehow, which of course almost slams the door on it immediately because Bradley Cooper's star is so up there at the moment that I don't know that that would ever be possible. But then again, a few years ago, Bradley Cooper was on the Limitless TV show for a season um, in very small ways because he loved that movie and was indebted to that as part of his success. So who knows? The, the talk about Alias, Revival, Reboot, what have you, has been in the air and even more so now than a few years ago. So we might not have seen the last of Sidney Bristow and Michael Vaughn. Who knows? I'd be up for it if they find a nice way. And even if it is more of a Sid is only on, you know, if they do 20 episodes and she's only in four of them in sort of like a mentor capacity. Um, and I don't necessarily think the show has to be about Isabel Vaughn going on missions, but I'd be up for it if they find a way to do it in a nice organic way and just have the, the OG cast, you know, pop up in, in small doses while still having like a, a charismatic new group. Marcella, would you be open to that? Or do you think it's over? Just leave it. What about, no, I would be open to it, but I have two questions. What about a limited series? Right. Yeah. And okay. Let's say you bring back Bradley Cooper, but what about bringing like, because you know, if they announce an alias reboot, you know that some people are going to say, what about Michael Vartan? Right. Like, so has their relationship as actors softened over the years to the point where they could tolerate each other? Because my gosh, I don't believe I'm saying this, but if we're going to do an alias reboot, I need Michael Vaughn. Yeah, you do. I think you 100% need both. And I think part of the reason Garner didn't mention him is is partly because when she said Bradley Cooper, her and Bradley Cooper are actually like really close friends because of this experience. And still, like she is absolute BFFs with Garber. Um, 
who obviously couldn't be on because his character is dead. But knowing that, I think that's why she said Cooper. Um, and I think that because it was so far in the past now, like we're talking about, this was 15 years ago. Um, and life has moved on. Vartan has an entirely different life. She has her multiple kids and all sorts of stuff. I think they'd be fine. I think that they would be able to recognize like the past is the past. It was just that it was all so fresh at the time that literally like they broke up and then she got pregnant and married to somebody else that like, it, it was like a whirlwind thing, like where I could see there being tensions, but I feel like 15 years later, uh, or even by the time they would actually get around to making this show, it'd be almost probably 20 years later. Um, I would be surprised if they couldn't put that behind them and, and work it out in a nice way. You mentioned Victor Garver a couple of days ago. She actually posted a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer did. She actually posted a picture of uh, Victor Garver and her. And in the tagline, she said, "This is the only serious picture of Victor and me that I couldn't that 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 I found of us not laughing." Yeah, like they they are best friends and like just have a great time together, which is awesome. Yeah. Like it's it's so cool when you find out that people who worked together ended up forming like a lifelong friendship. It always disappoints me when I find out like people who I think I see on a show and I'm like, they must be best friends in real life. And then you see them and they're like, yeah, like I love that person, but like we honestly haven't seen each other in 10 years. And you're always like, Oh, like that, Mm -hmm. that sucks. But the fact that her and Garber continue to, to basically have this like father daughter fun friendship is awesome. I mean, for me, for, for my personal experience with Victor Garver, the first time I ever heard, you know, saw or saw or heard the name Victor Garver was in Titanic. Yeah. You know, and, and that was that was years before I got indoctrinated into the JJ cult. No, we're not a cult. <laughs> uh, but eh, we might be. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but now every time that I think of Victor Garver, I'm not going to think of that guy from from Titanic, or I'm not going to think of the guy from A Legend of Tomorrow, or I'm not going to think of the guy from Orville. I'm going to think of Jack Bristow. Yeah. Um, what What do you think of the possibility of doing a limited series? Because you mentioned that you wanted to do like 20 episodes. Don't you think that would be too much? Yeah, like I do think that would be too much. I do think that would be too much. I honestly think if there was a way for them to get JJ involved and say like, okay, we're bringing Alias back for 10 episodes. Yeah, limited series. This is all it's ever going to be. I think that would be amazing. If they want to do... Because the like the other thing that they've always talked about is like, you know, uh, basically Alias the new class and have the old cast pop up as like the mentors or whatever. And I imagine that would basically be like, you know, an NBC normal show but even now a normal show is only 13 to 18 episodes right Mm -hmm. um would you get rachel would you get rachel nichols back i mean what is she doing now i don't know what she's doing now but i would only because that was one of the new characters that actually like worked really well so you know depending on if they ever brought it back who was involved from the first run, you know, if they got somebody who only worked on the early seasons, who didn't help create that character, then they might not be eager to bring her back. But if you got someone 
who was there for like the entire run, who actually likes that character, then I could see them finding a way to work it in. Okay, better question. Who do you um, who do you get to run the room? Who do you get to be the showrunner? That's that's the tough part, right? Because I I don't necessarily know who would be the best. Um, obviously, Kurtzman is so busy. No way, he's not. Yeah, or Orsi hasn't done jack shit by himself that he wouldn't be wanting to to jump into it. Um, Pink Pinkner. Maybe, but because that was the guy who was there what, near the end that that ended Alias, like would they want? Would what they about want Drew? And well, Goddard is a good choice, but also I feel like he's so busy. What is know, he doing writing, right now? Well, he's not doing anything that's really been announced. Um, but he's always in various stages writing like new movies and stuff. Oh, okay. So ever since. You know, he directed Bad Times at the El Royale and hasn't done much since. But, you know, he wrote The Martian. And I'm pretty sure he was writing the script for, like, the guy who wrote the novel of The Martian had another novel that they said had been optioned. And I'm pretty sure Goddard was working on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, we'll see. I know, you know, there was that time where he was going to be doing that Sinister Six movie for Sony that fell through. But now Sony's trying to get their, like, you know, Venom, Morbius spin-offs going that maybe that's back on the table. I don't know. You know you know who's doing, and this is totally not related to Alias, I apologize, guys. You know who's doing a Sinister, who, a sinister, ugh, a sinister Six style movie? I, well, this was reported for eons ago, but when I talk to her, I'm going to ask her about it. Uh, Bob reportedly wrote a script or a treatment for a uh, Spider-Man Sinister Six movie. With uh, This was after he and Alex uh, went their separate ways. Yeah. This was like, a, this was like, a, uh, like two years ago, I think. Hmm. So that's totally not related to what Well, and that would be about. interesting. Well, because, you know, that was, they were both heavily involved in the Spider-Man amazing series that... Uh, you know, went away, <laughs> went away. As far as we know, who knows once we see the new Spider-Man, whether that can kind of come back or not. Yeah. What about, I'm sorry, guys, I'm still caught up, you know, sort of, sort of fan casting the writers of the series. Well, and now about... that, well, we've put alias to bed. So we got all the time in the world to just fan cast, man. Let's go for it. Yeah. Uh, what about, what about, um, uh, Bob's brother? What about, J.R. Orsi. He wasn't there for too long, right? He wasn't. No. But like a guy like that, you just want someone who hopefully was involved in the original run that has a reverence for the characters. Like, I don't want some hot shot to come in and for them to say, like, you know, even NBC or somebody saying, like, we're doing it. And people will be like, oh, is J.J. or any of the originals no. involved? No. Like, okay. Because I don't, I don't see Garner... Garner wouldn't say yes unless it gets JJ's blessing because her and JJ obviously are still still pals and they're still working together. They have a show for uh, Apple are. TV, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like that's the only comfort is that I know there's no way they can do it with Garner unless JJ is somehow giving it his approval. No, they, they, there's no way that I would do it 
unless JJ said, listen, I'm going to executive produce this thing. And there, and like, we just live in such a weird time where like even terrible shows can get a revival or a spinoff. So like, I would hope that a, a good show like this, that door would be possible to open as long as it's done with care and and properly you know what i mean and especially when we have seen shows that try and do sort of um that tightrope of being a reboot slash a revival like a cobra kai that literally brings back everyone but also half of the show is the new generation and it works it works because the people who make it love the originals warts and all and and they brought back literally like everyone they could and gave us like a bunch of new characters to care about. So like, if you're going to do it, that's kind of the template. Um, now that's a wildly different tone, but that's kind of, you know, what they should shoot for. I think. No, and the showrunners of Cobra Kai, yeah, the showrunners of Cobra Kai have said that to them, their star Wars is karate, uh, kid. The karate kid. Yeah. So, you know, they, to, to me, they're the perfect people on the planet to run the show and drive the show. Although that's being said from a guy that I I've never, I I'm, I'm not particularly attached to Cobra Kai, but like you said, I just love when the showrunners take, you know, you know, writers take on a project that they're passionate about and they give it their all instead of having some, like you said, some yuppie guy, a big name, somebody like Akiva Goldman, I'm sorry, uh, come in and ruin everything. Well, because you know what? There are some people, and like this is the sad reality of the business, who they would maybe get offered something like this and they had no intention of, you know, going back and discovering the show or didn't even care for the show. But if it's the only offer they've gotten in a long time, would be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And then they, you know, you get those people who are like, oh, I didn't really love the the original, but this is the only thing that's knocking on my door. So I'll just take it and I'll turn it into whatever I actually like. And it's like, well, no, don't do not do that to the millions of people who passionately care about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that happen with some shows in the past, but I think that mostly those days are, are behind, especially now when like spinoffs, revivals are not some sort of cash grab or nostalgia-fueled easy opportunity because we've had such good ones um, that now people assume that if a show is coming back, it's going to be as good, if not better than the original in the first place. I think that would be something I'd be looking forward to as long as they get the right cast or the right, you know, people behind the scenes. So you don't have any more aces in the hole to like, who could be, um, I mean, I have one more guy, but there's no way in hell he would ever do this. Mm -hmm. You guys are going to think I'm crazy, especially you, Matt. Uh, what about... What about... He would never do this. What about Damon? I was going to say, well... I, no way. Yeah, I feel like he just he just wouldn't. Alias... No because Alias was happening when Lost was happening, I feel like Damon probably hasn't even invested the time into to alias and spy shit has never really been his bag. Anyway, something that I feel like has been his bag. Yeah. Um, no, but you never know. But then again, like there's nothing in his work that would make me think that he would, would jump at that opportunity, especially now 
that he is telling much more important stories. I feel like anything that Lindelof does from here on out that doesn't have any sort of social commentary to it is going to be seen as a disappointment. Well, that it is interesting that you say that social commentary, but, but you're speaking just for yourself or just for the, just for the general, just for people like us. Right. Well, well, yeah. Well, like, I mean, you know, if you found out that the guy who did leftovers and Watchmen, that both had like a lot to say about society, humanity, um, all that kind of stuff was to do a fluff show. You know what I mean? Like a fun spy romp. So like, that's the only thing that I would think it would be like out of left field because he has now moved to a place where if he's not doing something that's saying something, it would feel weird. And it would also feel weird to do a preachy, you know, socially relevant version of Alias because that was never the show it was. No, no, Alias, Alias, and you can Would it be me. amazing? Yeah. Like, if the guy signed on, would it be great? Probably. <laughs> right? Like, if he got involved, of course it would have to be good and it would elevate it. But I just feel like, yeah, he's he's not in that same ballpark anymore. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Alias, to me, has always been a cross between Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones. Yeah. And it has never reached those those uh those societal tones that you know the leftovers ha the, the leftovers reached right. to some extent and watchmen exceeded if you enjoyed this two minute talk about damon lindelof buckle up get your airplane ticket ready because starting next episode we will be taking a trip on oceanic to an island in an undetermined location as we dive into lost from the beginning, which will be fun to revisit. If you guys have any questions or comments for us, please reach out on Twitter with the hashtag radio eight one five. We will check out your comment, read it on the show. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason on Twitter at Matt Crandall, Marcella, what's the best way people can reach you? Yeah, guys, if you want to reach me and uh, talk to me about JJ, Damon, or anything else, you can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. And if you like the podcast, please follow, like, comment on your favorite podcast subscriber. Share the links. Let people know what's going on. And if you don't, then shut your mouth and, <laughs> and, and don't. But uh, thanks for hate listening. We appreciate it. And until next time, we'll talk back soon.